Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and I am pleased to bring to you today someone that I would call a titan, an intellectual titan who I have learned so much from, Cassie Shea. She's fast, she's smart, she's emotionally intelligent, she leads and coaches people, she's able to teach people in such a way that is on the level with them, not uh, high and mighty and pretentious in her teaching. She's really on the level with the people that she's speaking with. Incredibly brilliant woman. Her name is Cassandra. She goes by Cassie Shea. Cassie, welcome to the show today. How are you? Thank you so much, Matt. I am fantastic. My day started with a sunrise swim this morning. So I popped in the ocean, no wetsuit, which is a little scary. I think it's about 65 degrees, so not terrible. I'm in Santa Barbara, California. So did a lovely swim, saw a sea lion, and from a safe distance. So I am, I'm definitely awake. I'm here. I'm ready to have just a great conversation and super glad to be here with you. What a great freaking answer. I love the answer. I'm setting a trap here for anyone that says, oh, I'm good. How are you? And you have a fantastic answer. It's fantastic. And I'm curious if you're swimming in the ocean, wetsuit or not, I don't even know what that means. When I (laughs) hear the word wetsuit, I think of Keanu Reeves and Point Break, just to age myself a little bit here. So when you're swimming in the ocean. Keanu Reeves is timeless. You can make that reference any day. Yes, yes, party on. So I would say with seeing a sea lion, what is your first gut response when you see a sea lion swimming over there in the ocean next to you? What what happens then? My gentle response is just don't get too close. Like there's so many videos of people that get too close to nature. I think sea lions are one of the cutest animals. If you haven't been up close and personal, I'm fine doing it on a paddleboard or a kayak where there's a little bit of buffer. But if it's just me swimming in the ocean, I don't want them to think I'm a tasty snack or I don't really actually know what they even eat. But in my dream, we would like swim together and play together. But just out of respect for nature, I keep a safe distance. I kind of keep one eye out for them. But they just like seem playful. They always seem like they're having fun. So that's the energy I try to bring to the swim, even when it's really cold, is just how to relax into this experience, have some fun and yeah, respect nature. Okay. Well, great answer. Well, let's dive straight into the deep end of the ocean here. I love to kick off with a hard-hitting question and ask, take us back to a time in your life where you have experienced a heavy challenge for yourself. And that can be right now in your life. It can be all the way back to childhood to give you plenty of the scope of your entire life, Cassie. What is something that you have endured that is just very challenging for you? Yeah, good question. Honestly, as soon as you asked it, there's like, a domino of, I could pick anything, but I'm going to go back to right before the pandemic. I think that's a time that a lot of people still in recent memory for all of us, like who were we right before the pandemic? So if you met me right before the pandemic, I don't think you'd recognize me. I was working at a corporate job at a startup, so I had a full-time role, executive role at a startup. 
and I was about 60 pounds heavier. I'm 5'2". I'm like a kind of fun-sized, itty-bitty person. But at the time, I was just really stagnant in my life. I wasn't moving. I wasn't taking really good care of my body. And I had a life that felt like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you put on an outfit, you look at yourself, you're like, gosh, none of this fits. It's not just that the clothes don't fit, but it's like who I am, the projection of this image. It's just not me. And so every day I was having that experience for months and months on end. And I was kind of at the pinnacle of success. I had climbed the corporate ladder. I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I guess just turned 30 maybe. And I was at the pinnacle of success. I had the job title I'd always wanted. I was making a really great salary. I was managing a large team, collaborating with people from all over the world, like getting to travel and do really fun events with the company that I was working at and eating at Michelin starred restaurants, living in a glass penthouse that overlooked all of downtown LA. Every external marker of success that I thought would make me happy didn't. And I would have this experience. I would look in the mirror every morning and I would look at myself and it felt like, gosh, this life doesn't fit me. And the person that I saw in the mirror was not the person that I felt like I was inside. So every day, instead of doing things like I do now, which is go for a sunrise hike or go for a sunrise swim, I was sitting in front of the mirror crying every single day. The challenge was very much that I had created this life that by all external markers of success looked kind of perfect or at least enviable. And I realized I was playing life by someone else's scorecard, or at least a scorecard that became outdated for me. And I felt very, very lost in those months. And the challenge was, I didn't know how to express to people, I'm really unhappy. And I'm not just unhappy because I'm ungrateful. Like I was grateful for everything I had. I was grateful for the job. I was grateful for my living place. I was grateful for the experiences I had. But my soul felt like it was dying. Like my external life looked like it was flourishing. And my soul felt like it was dying. And so the biggest challenge for me at that juncture in life was, how do I change everything? And how do I really know who I am? How do I bridge the gap between the person I see in the mirror and the life that I've created and the person that maybe everyone sees with who I really am inside? So that was honestly the biggest challenge. And it was deep and it was kind of scary because I didn't know who to confide in or who to admit to that like, gosh, nothing in this life fits me anymore. So that was a really, really big challenge for me. Yeah. And totally relatable and not spoken of enough by high performers that have these external markers of success. I can relate very deeply with you on this one myself, living in a penthouse in downtown Charlotte back when I moved here and had reached a high level in corporate America and still felt this place that I loved my people in the short term, like right in front of me, I loved all my people and I could not see myself living a long life if I did not get out of this. My dad died at 58 and a half. And when he died, he died of being a workaholic. His work always stressed him out. I was super stressed. So when you share these things, I honor you because you have the courage to share what a lot of other high performers are going through right now. And to say that you felt like your soul was dying and you had all these markers of success, but you were hurt on the inside. Just thank you for sharing. So yeah, let's go to that moment when you finally, in your own mind, got the courage to do something about it and, and shift. When did that happen? I remember the exact day I was actually on a walk with one of my coworkers and friends. We were walking in LA around the Silver Lake Reservoir. So for anyone in LA, they'll know that reference. It's a very chic, fun neighborhood. I remember this feeling of, it sounds really extreme, but I'm just going to tell you the truth because that's why we're here, right? I had this feeling of like, 
I need to just drop a nuclear bomb and start completely over. Nothing about how I'm doing anything can survive. If I'm going to make this transition, it can't be gradual and it can't be half-assed. I need to change everything if I'm really going to change everything and I need to have the courage to start over. And I just remember being on that walk. And for me, motion is always medicine. I can get really lost in my head, but until I actually get into my body and get into motion, it's hard for me to really connect the dots between the ideas. So for me, the somatic experience is really, really important. But I just remember thinking, if I'm going to change I'm going to change everything. That day, like on that walk was that moment where I realized I've done it before once. I've changed everything in my whole life. I could do it again. I'll probably survive. There might be fallout. And that's kind of the metaphor, right? Like there might be fallout. There might be unexpected consequences. There might be unforeseen circumstances that I can't predict no matter how how much I'm a planner and have contingencies for my contingency plans. I just remembered this moment of, it was just this internal switch where I just realized I'm going to have to change everything and I'm going to have to be okay with not knowing exactly how it's going to turn out. And it was almost four years ago, actually. Wow. Okay. So nuclear time, motion is medicine. You're feeling inspired to do it. So then about four years ago, what happened next after that walk? I did it. I pulled the trigger and... It wasn't actually terrifying. The more terrifying reality was if everything stays the same, I feel like my person is going to be erased. That's how I felt when I said like my soul was dying. It was like the creative expression of me, whatever that essence is, whatever that soul level essence is, felt like it was going to be erased. And so to me, the motion that I put into place in terms of changing everything was I need to find that soul essence. If everything is in black and white right now, I have to find how to produce the film of my life in color again, because there's something so deeply missing. Basically, I gave notice on my entire life. I put my resignation in for my executive job through a series of very unexpected beautiful synchronicities, including a dinner party. I found a company that was incredible out in London and signed a contract to go consult with them. So I started my business with a leap from Los Angeles, where I was living, where my penthouse was. And I put everything that I owned, I I basically liquidated all my possessions, got rid of almost all my clothes put the few things that I wanted to keep. Whoa, which is- <laughs> whoa, time out. You got rid of all your clothes? Whoa, oh my goodness, because you are stylish. I've seen the way that you you dress and you are stylish. You got rid of all that? Wow. I literally got rid of everything. I don't think I changed my hair. No, I did. I did. I dyed my hair blonde. So like, there was nothing unchanged. This is also crazy. I've actually never told the story. So at the time in this life that didn't fit me, I was wearing glasses. And I had glasses, not because my eyes were necessarily so far off base, but I felt like I needed a barrier. Like I just needed to hide myself internally. I just didn't want anyone to see who I really was. And it felt like this little shield. So I literally like took my glasses and I broke them. And I was like, ah, my vision's probably okay. I haven't worn glasses. How did you break them? Did you just take them in your hand and crack them or snap them? Yeah. I was like, no, this is old. So snapped them, dyed my hair blonde, got rid of all my clothes. I kept all my books. My books are the one thing in life that's stayed with me. And I do collect more. I put the few remaining possessions that I owned in polka dot pink storage boxes. I kind of gave my life resignation January 31st of 2020. And I moved to London in February 2020, (laughs) which if we're tracking here, that is kind of crazy global timing. So yeah, I literally changed everything about who I was. Like that is not a joke. I changed everything and moved to London and started consulting. I started a business 
in February of 2020, which was absolutely insane timing as the story kind of unfolds from there, as we all remember. Yeah, well, I don't know what happened. How did it unfold in London? I mean, I know how it unfolded in North Carolina, the United States. What happened in London? First week, first month living there, new career, new you. What happened with all of COVID and everything that first month? So I honest to goodness had the time of my life. I lived in West London. I lived in Hancock Park, which is adjacent to Notting Hill. So if we all remember the Notting Hill movie with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant, the streets that are shown in that movie were the streets I was walking on every single day. So I rented a flat in the most chic, beautiful little place in West London. I had the greatest landlady. We would have tea all the time and chat about life. I walked everywhere. It was like such a beautiful time in my life coming out of a season of feeling very disconnected from my body. And so I walked everywhere. And... I honestly felt like I was in a movie, like I was walking on air every day, maybe sashaying, occasionally dancing. And I worked in Notting Hill. I lived right by the Kensington Gardens. So I would get my tea in the morning or coffee. I would walk right by the Kensington Gardens, duck in, duck out. It was fantastic. I met wonderful people. My very first weekend in London, I didn't yet have any friends. I just landed a few days ago. And so I went to the pub right across the street from me. So I was like, oh, that'll be a good idea. Like I'll integrate with the local neighborhood. And I ended up doing karaoke all night and getting the entire bar singing (laughs) the soundtrack from Greece, which one of my claims to fame is I can sing any song from Greece. So we were dancing to Greece Lightning with like a bunch of Londoners until however late in the day. (laughs) And they were a little bit worried. They're like, okay, so you're American you're here by yourself. And multiple people came up to me who worked at the bar and they're like, we just really don't see American girls come in here by themselves. Are you sure you're okay? And I was like, actually, I'm better than okay. I'm establishing residence. Like I'm totally fine. So it was pretty magical. I had a great experience working, living. I made a lot of friends really quickly and my trip only lasted three weeks, but I felt like it was a little bit of a lifetime because I genuinely had made so many friends My social calendar is so full between meeting up with friends, going to pubs, going to museums. I had so much on the calendar that I didn't get to, including like theater and salsa dancing. And my calendar was exceptionally full. And my heart was honestly more full because it was the first time in life where I felt like I'd struck this beautiful balance between I could work, I could do what I wanted to do work-wise. And I'd only scheduled my contract to work four days a week. So that way I could take three days every weekend to go sightseeing around England. I actually went to Madrid as well by myself, which is the first time I traveled to a non-English speaking country by myself and had a wonderful time. It was also the height of when COVID was starting to spread throughout Europe and I wasn't super aware of that. So in retrospect, that was a little bit dicey. I was in Madrid in March, early, early March, 2020, right before the world's shutting down. So I feel like if the world shutting down was like the curtain coming down, my final act in London was a showstopper. I had the absolute time of my life. It was so much fun. (laughs) Well, so the pandemic started and it starts to really take shape in early March, mid-March 2020. And you've been there for three weeks, going on a month. And what happened at that exact moment? Because I thought you were moving there because you had a contract. Did the contract can't? I mean, what happened at that moment in March? Yeah, I had the opportunity to stay. The people I was working with asked me if I could stay. And 
I thought about it. And as the world event started unfolding and I realized the borders were going to close, I remember exactly where I was. It was a Sunday. So it was March, must have been like March 14th, maybe. I think I flew home on the 15th or 16th. But anyway, so mid-March, I'm sitting having high tea in Fortnum and Mason across the street from the Royal Arts Academy in London. It's the fanciest high tea in town. I'm having the time of my life eating champagne, drinking tea, not eating champagne, but maybe (laughs) eating cake, having the time of my life at this tea. And I get a text from the person I'm working with and he texted me and he's like, Hey, the borders are going to close. It's basically go time. You have to decide if you're going to stay or go. He's like, if you really want to get back to your family, which was a consideration for me, it's just being in the same continent as my family, if the world really is shutting down. He said, I need to book your ticket right now. Like you need to decide this minute. Wow. Right then? Wow. Right then. And he'd had some nods that the border shutdown was coming. And in London, London was the last first world city to shut down. So there was not a lot of precautions being taken. It was very much keep calm and carry on. So my experience was maybe this is just a little overhyped because I'm looking at the American media. Like this seems a little hysterical. Everything's normal in London. What's everyone talking about? I don't know. It was a very different experience for me in those first few weeks. And not from a sense of denial. It was just a different experience. So I remember sitting at this very, very fancy high tea in the middle of London. And I start kind of softly crying. I'm like, I really don't want to go home. Having the time of my life. And I felt like a cartoon character because instead of the tears like graciously falling down my cheeks, they were like, splurting out like basically like you know like in the cartoon where they're like crying like this so I go in the bathroom and I try to like clean myself up a little bit and I I can't get it together I'm like so so heartbroken after literally just changing everything in my life feeling like I've landed in the best place possible having the time of my life it was honestly one of the most heartbroken days I've ever had and the waiter who was serving my high tea he just kept bringing me more cake he's like maybe maybe this will help her. And I just kept eating it and crying. I couldn't stop crying. If I had more sense, I would have been embarrassed. But it was also just like one of those moments where I'm like, I can't hide how I feel. Like I'm so sad right now. So I went home from that tea. I packed my bag and I was on a flight the next morning early. So it was less than 12 hours later. I was on a flight home to the US. So. Wow. Yeah. And does your contract now with this company over there, is it now in jeopardy? Is it done? Where's the state of your business as you go back to America? I didn't know. That was the honest answer. I didn't know. So I continued working with them for a little while longer, maybe a month or two longer. And the way that the pandemic had unfolded, things just changed a lot. So it made sense to, on both ends, just end that contract. And I didn't really have a plan. I did have enough money. I had enough in savings to just exist. So that's what I did for the next, probably about six months. I took about a six month sabbatical. And I focused on healing my body. So I lost during 2020. So basically for the whole year, I lost about 50 to 60 pounds during that year. So it was a lot actually. (laughs) And I really just worked on nourishing my body. And then I also finished my manuscript. I had had a book that I was writing and it was very much a casual endeavor. I hadn't put any serious thought into it. And so I finished my manuscript And then after taking about six months off, I did get another contract with a technology company doing advising what I'd done in corporate, the intersection of business process and people. It was actually kind of a perfect balance. I had three things that I was doing. 
I was advising companies at a high level. I ended up pouring wine at a winery in Santa Barbara where I lived because as an extrovert during COVID, I wanted some way to communicate with humans. So we were all outside. It was pretty safe, I hope. (laughs) And I got to basically do stand-up comedy. I just used the ability to pour wine as a testing ground for my jokes. And then I would know if the material was good to put in my book. And then I finished my book manuscript. So it was a really, really fun year and very playful, very fun. That definitely helped the heartache of leaving London. That's what I did. Wow. (laughs) Wow. 50 to 60 pounds, nourishing your body, six month sabbatical. I'd like to stay here just one more minute. And then I'd really love to dive into your business and some of the things you teach because I've learned from you and I want to give our audience the chance to do that. I'm curious, how did you lose 50 to 60 pounds? Because that just doesn't, you don't get lucky. And what happened to lose 50 or 60 pounds, Cassie? I know this is not the answer that's going to make sense, but it was love. I didn't love my body. I didn't love myself. When I was putting on that weight, it was very much a season of life where I felt deeply unhappy. I felt disconnected from myself. I didn't feel very worthy or very lovable. And in losing the weight, the number one thing that I changed was that I figured out books, meditations. I've tried it all. (laughs) I've really tried everything and anything. But the thing that ended up shifting things for me is I just came into this sense of loving myself, of feeling my inherent worthiness to know that I was lovable. It's truly taken a lifetime myself to practice it. It's not like a one and done thing, especially when you're, I think somebody like me, where you're very success driven, like you feel this urgent, dire need to prove yourself through external achievements. That's almost an addiction. Like I call that an achievement addiction in a way. And I had to kick that achievement addiction. And the way I did that is I upgraded the need for external achievement to really realizing like I'm lovable, just me, just how I exist, being a human being, getting the gift of life. We all are. I believe that very deeply. We're all given this beautiful gift of living and we all show up lovable. And we forget that, the traumas and the dramas and the things that unfold. So to me, I just focused on remembering that I was lovable. And because I felt lovable, then I took actions that felt loving toward my body. And that looked like changing how I nourished myself, changing how I moved. And it's been a long time. I mean, that process started, you know, three and a half, almost four years ago now. I tried so many different kinds of movement because I wasn't sure what would actually feel really good and what would feel really loving. And I've been through lots of different seasons since then. More importantly, even than the achievement of losing the weight, I've actually kept it off, which is pretty exciting to me because the statistics, if you lose that much weight or that you will gain it back, especially within the next few years. And I didn't. North Star for me is how do I move and how do I love my body from a place of joy and having fun? If you asked me this, you know, 18 months ago, I was in peak running shape. I had just done a half marathon for my birthday. That's my birthday present to myself. I was lifting weights. I was Russian deadlifting about my weight. I was Russian deadlifting like 115 pounds or so my body was really stressed. It was really unhappy. And so I had to take a step back and I had to ask myself, what would feel good? Like what would be loving? What would be nourishing? Those are usually my questions. What would be loving? What would be nourishing? So now what my life looks like is I do a lot of hiking. I do a lot of swimming and I dance. I dance and I dance and I dance. That's a whole other topic. But dancing is what brings me joy. It's movement that feels really good in my body. For me, the balance that I've found in terms of how to love my body and how to nourish it has just been a question of, you know, in this season, what's the most loving thing I can do? And what would feel really good? What would feel really fun? And that feel good feeling is just leads me to like better and better activity. Mm-hmm. 
what, when you say uh, you said hiking, swimming, and then you just lit up when you said <laughs> dancing. What kind of dancing are we talking about here? What does that mean to you, dance? So everything, anything. I made a commitment to myself this year. Baby Cassie's dream was to be a professional dancer. And I didn't pursue it. I was very serious. 10 years old, I realized in ballet class, I'm never going to be a professional ballerina. And I don't want to injure my toes. So I quit. And then I explored a lot of other types of dance. And eventually I stopped dancing. So I haven't danced in about 17 years. And this January, I made a commitment that I was going to, I was going to do it for no other reason than it was time to make a childhood dream come true. So I trained in the dance studio five to six times a week. I hired a professional dance coach. I trained in the dance studio five to six times a week. One of my goals was to be able to choreograph a piece to flash dance. So I've choreographed my own expressive movement piece to flash dance. I've learned seven different kinds of ballroom and social dancing at this point. And now I'm actually signing up for my very first dance competition in December. So I'm taking it all the way this year from being an absolute beginner in ballroom. I've had like a minimal training, but being basically an absolute beginner in ballroom to teaching a couple classes in the community, just as a way of giving back and helping other people fall in love with themselves and fall in love with dance. The full circle moment for me will be in December of this year. So in a few months coming up, I'm going to enter my first dance competition. So I'm very, very excited about that. But for me, that's what lights my soul up. It's what I absolutely love doing. And it just brings me tremendous joy. It's the only activity I could do physically for like three hours. And I just don't feel like it's timeless. Like I'm not watching the clock at all. It's just absolutely timeless. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I love the way that you just get so much energy from that. And you have found that thing that gives you joy and that sense of loving yourself. And just thank you for taking the time to unpack all that. And what I am inspired to feel and to share right now from your story is that for those listening out there, if you have any place inside of you where you don't love yourself or don't nourish yourself or are living to some external marker that doesn't fill your soul, then this is a good before and after story that you can do it. You can do it. And Cassie has exemplified that because who would have thought that living in the penthouse glass suite in LA, leading a company and having the quote dream job with all the external markers, that there was so much pain inside and look now what has happened and and what Cassie has engineered to happen. So amazing. And I would love to learn from you and talk more about your business and talk a little bit about the triangle. I believe you call it the resource triangle formula and just anything around your business. Please teach us. We are moldable clay. Please help mold us, Cassie, and teach us. Awesome. Well, thanks for the opportunity. So in terms of my business, where I worked in corporate was the intersection of business process, operations, and human resources. And so the question for me has always been, how do we get the right people in the right seats doing the right activities? Where I've pivoted in terms of having my own coaching practice and advisory practice for CEOs is actually looking at resources. When we leverage our resources to create outsized results, there's kind of magic that happens. So the way that I do that in the the simplest terms, Matt, it sounds so simple that it's almost like, duh, (laughs) but there's a lot of traction and there's a lot of power from simplicity. So as entrepreneurs, as business owners, and even executives and leaders and companies, I believe we have three resources that we get to manage at any given time that when managed rightly and managed well, create outsized results in our life and in our business. And those are time, money, and energy. And when I'm coaching, I always actually start with time. So when I work with entrepreneurs at this point, we actually plan the week ahead and we look at only four levers. We use constraint theory. So I believe constraints create and power creativity. 
So if you have unlimited options, it's really hard to select the best one. But when you actually limit your options, it creates focus and discernment. So we actually look at every week four areas where the entrepreneur, the leader can spend their time as a currency with the idea that where you spend your time, you're going to yield fruit, you're going to yield results. So we choose four areas that are going to create outsized results in the business. And then we map those to revenue generation. Sometimes it's one-to-one. It's really simple to see the correlation. Sometimes it's not. But we want to make sure that you're spending time on things that are actually generating revenue for the business. And so we always start with time because to me, time is a precious resource. Attention would also kind of fall into that as we think about time as potentially one of our more scarce resources. Attention is really tied in there as well. So if we don't know where we're focusing our time and attention, and we only think about managing the P&L or the EBITDA or the balance sheet, I think we're really missing a key currency that powers our business. And that's time. So thinking about time as a currency where you're investing your time and where you're getting ROI from your time or return on time, ROT, is really, really key and important. Then we look at the revenue generating component. So look at money. And then the final piece that I bring, and this is largely from my experience of what I just shared from you, how to find more nourishment, more love, more joy in my body, is I always look at energy. And energy to me is state management, it's well-being, it's health. If you don't have the energy to power where you're spending your time in your business and how you're generating that revenue, to me, that's out of balance. It's not healthy. It's not sustainable. So sometimes those conversations in terms of looking at energy levers, sometimes that's optimizing AM or PM routines or making sure there's a certain activity level that matches something that feels really, really good for you. A lot of times I challenge the people I work with of how much are you getting out in nature? Are you disconnecting from your technology? And that can look so different for everybody. I have one client where he loves to put on a pack and go rucking. I have other people that want to go out fishing or they want to go hiking. Or another gal, her thing is a sauna. She's like, I just love like sitting in a sauna. It's like the number one thing that clears my mind. So we look at those well-being and energy components and also investment in relationships. So sometimes that looks like making sure that you have that one-to-one with your child, that you haven't taken them out on just a one-to-one date recently or refreshing date night with your spouse that maybe that's fallen off the calendar. So the energy piece to me is the missing link when we are planning our week where we're looking at how to manage our resources as entrepreneurs and leaders. The energy piece powers everything else. But I always start with time because when you're deliberate with your time and attention, it creates focus. I'm just sitting back here taking all this in. I think you just like fire hydrant, like (laughs) spray me with the giant big water hose. And there's just so much there to unpack. I start with the constraint theory. I love the idea. It's like the Baskin Robbins 33 flavors. You know, I'm not able to choose because there's just so many choices. I love the way you start with that. Where do you see in your line of work that the leaders are most out of balance in these three areas of resource? Like what's the most common challenge that you find when you first go into a company and diagnose and, and go from there? The number one thing I find, Matt, and I think this is so interesting, is that a lot of times the executives or the leaders or the founders, they're spending their time in areas that aren't focused on revenue generation. And so where I get them pivoting very quickly, like the number one thing I'm looking for is what is their zone of genius? Not just what are they excellent at or what are they good at or where do they need to delegate? Those are all good questions from a process improvement or a consultant's lens. But I go to actually, what is the genius factor? What is the DNA that they bring that can't be replicated? And if they're energized serving there and leading from that place and there's an and and we connect that to revenue generation, that's where the magic happens. 
then we just need to build a team or a support system or processes around them that can enable them to stay there basically. But a lot of times what I see with entrepreneurs or with executives or leaders is they're spending their time as a currency on things that are not getting them ROI. And they're spending time on things that are actually draining their energy batteries. It's draining their life energy. And worse, they're not connected at all to revenue. They're connected to maybe revenue, but they're not really connected to revenue generation. So if I can get that executive thinking in the terms of where the zone of genius as a Venn diagram overlaps with revenue generation, and we just basically eliminate everything else. It's kind of like the Pareto principle on steroids. If 20% of your efforts are yielding 80% of your results, how do we get rid of the 80% of the junk that's distracting you, creating a lack of focus, creating wasted time? So it's not just energy inefficiency or even, you know, capital or money inefficiency. It's time inefficiency that really like grinds my gears. I hate it. Like we got to get rid of it because life's short and life's precious. And I'd rather see that people are spending their time on things that are creating outsized results and that they have time and energy left over to then go do the things that light them up in life. Because for some of us, work does light us up. It is the thing that brings us power and purpose. But for some, like for me, I love what I do for work. I love what I get to do. But I also love what I get to do as a person, as a human being, as a creator, as an artist, as a dancer. And both are important. So I want to have enough energy in my tank to enjoy both. I don't want to have to choose. Fantastic. It's refreshing to hear you share this perspective. And I can just imagine that you're going in there and you're sharing this with an executive and many executives, they got to where they are because they have figured things out, they think. I wonder when you hit that first, hold on a second, if you're making me let go of HR, let go of correcting people problems and not doing this, then the whole ship's going to fall apart. How do you navigate through their initial resistance or barrier to change when they start to uh, give you some pushback in that first meeting or the first time that you're engaged? Yeah. I mean, it happens in waves. Sometimes the idea sounds really good at first, but then change is difficult. So... Where I like to build the bridge is asking like, who do you get to be as a result of making these changes? So it's not just what do you get to do or what do you get to have as a result of making these changes, but who do you get to be? Because the identity level shifts typically are the most lasting and the most impactful. What I do spend time doing with my clients is actually digging deep into what are your core values in life and how do those map to your core values in your business? Because if you get to live the same values, the values of your life and the values of your business in one experience, it's going to help mitigate some of the concern or the emotionality of letting go of certain things. So in terms of shifting today, there's a quote from Dan Sullivan, who's just a legend in the field of entrepreneurship, change and coaching. And he says, if you want to make your present better, you need to make your future bigger. To me, the question is, If we envision out, this is an exercise I love to do, I envision out with my clients 20 years. And the reason why I pick 20 is because usually our day-to-day problems are resolved. If we're in a space of imagination and play and fun, if we imagine ourselves 20 years out, our day-to-day problems are mitigated, at least in my imagination they are. But what's interesting is it it gets us talking about legacy and purpose. And what do we want to give in terms of the best of ourselves if we organize the best of our efforts? Who do we get to become? And then what do we want to give? And then I work backwards to look at how do we bring that energy into today? And it makes the conversations about like, do we give up this piece of the pie? Do we give up or change who gets to do this piece in the organization? It makes those conversations more in context of our future self. And ultimately, the legacy and the purpose we want to create with why we're even doing this business in the first place. 
I love it. I think about the identity shift of who do you get to be. What instantly comes to my mind is when we're playing a soccer game and I coach eight-year-old girl soccer because my daughter's on the team and they love it when they're winning. And when they're not scoring the goals, the other team is up like three or four to nothing. They're just really down on themselves and they're frustrated. I remember bringing them over to the side one time and I said, do you know who you are right now? You're a soccer player. And I learned this from my coach, John Berghoff. You know, whenever you have this place where they start to get really frustrated as kids, I bring them over there and remind them of what they're doing and who they are right there in this moment and everything that that means to them in that moment. And whenever I bring it up, you're a soccer player right now. You get to go out there and do this. They always get a little bit fired up. That, and I give them a skittle or two. But every time uh, when you talk about the identity of who we get to be, I just see some transformation in the kids. And you're talking about helping adults and leaders remember or see who they want to be and who they get to be in the future. That's transformational. Fantastic. Cassie, if we want to get in touch with you and inquire more, where do we find you? And how do we talk more with Cassie Shea about your resource triangle formula and hiring you and working with you? How do we do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I hang out on LinkedIn. So you can find me at Cassie Shea. And that's the best way to get in touch. I would love to hear from you and join in in a conversation. Yeah, and I can tell every listener out there that I've been privileged to be in a room when I did not know Cassie in the same mastermind group. And she was one of the teachers and she has taught on a number of occasions where I have been present and I have learned from her. And she's a really good teacher. She always makes me feel like I matter. I'm welcome here. I'm in a safe place here. It's never a condescension like some teachers can be. So she's great at teaching at the pace of the student. And I'd also say that socially, I've been in rooms with her where we're equals and peers, and she's super cool to hang out with. And so all those things are happening. And plus, if you did not know, she is a superb dancer. <laughs> and you'll probably find that when this episode comes out, we're probably gonna try to link that. Is there going to be like a live competition? We can go and follow it? Is that what it's going to be, Cassie? That would be pretty cool. Gosh, I don't even know what I'm dancing. <laughs> it's very in the moment, but I'll keep you updated. I'll absolutely keep you updated. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been super cool to jam with you for a while and hear this story. I mean, first learning how to nourish and love yourself and how to be courageous enough to share this story and to make the break and just put your life on notice. I love the way that you frame that. That was a phenomenal learning lesson. And ultimately, motion is medicine and Cassie's living proof of that. So Cassie, we have made it to the lightning round here at the very end of our episode today. So ding, ding, ding. Let's gear up here for some lightning questions. I would say first, you made a statement and I wanted to go Austin Powers on you and say, nerd alert, you said that your books survived and I have got hundreds of books here. So I'm a big book nerd and I love that you said books. If you have this super fast brain that goes in a million different directions, I'm going to try to confine it and give you some parameters. I'm going to ask you for some book recommendations. Let's just say the first three books that come to mind that have had an impact in your life. If it's only three, what are three that have had an impact on you? Okay, Matt, it's going to be hard. I'm going to do it. First one that comes to mind, 10X is Easier Than 2X by Dr. Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan. Absolutely transformational. If you want to learn about the science of your future self, that's where you go. The second book that has really kind of shaken me up and given me a lot to think about over the years is The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. He built a billion dollar industry and also meditates. Like He's such a interesting case of polarities. Let me see, book number three, a Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. 
I've read it probably five times. I don't understand a lick of it, but it makes me think bigger. The, the universe apparently is ever expanding. So I want to be a person who's also ever expanding. So I can't understand any of it. But theoretical physics is like my rabbit hole. I just like to research. So nerd alert just got like louder. Don't understand it at all. But whenever I run into a physicist, even on the dance floor, I'll talk to him about or her. I'll talk to them about theoretical physics and is the universe actually expanding? So that's my third. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm fascinated that you said the surrender experiment, because that's the book my wife just listened to and it had a profound impact on her. And I'd listened to The Untethered Soul uh, some years ago and really loved that. And to see my wife and I on this journey of really being present and letting go of that future perfection and past trauma and simply being, it has really helped us just to be present. And I love that you shared that book. It's on a circle. A number of people have shared that. So great. Thank you there. Okay, let's go to music. You're a dancer. You are someone who moves. I'm curious if there are, let's just say, a song and or a musician that inspires you and fills your bucket. What might that song and the musician be? Okay, I'm just going to go like top of heart. A lot of people talk top of mind. I try to talk top of heart, like what's on my heart. I freaking love ABBA. I've been on a deep disco kick this whole summer. The Mamma Mia soundtrack is always playing at my house. Here we go again. And I love it. I love ABBA. It's just joyful. It's fun. The way I think about my life is I kind of want it to feel a little bit every day. Like I'm at like a sequined disco party, like just having fun, dancing, living my best life. So I do love disco and ABBA is is kind of the number one hit of the summer slash fall now. <laughs> now, did they do that uh, that Dancing Queen song? Is that them? Yes, they did. Oh, oh my God. That is the <laughs> last song that I ever danced to on my last day at college before we graduated was that song. And every time it comes out in the car, literally, it go, we go crazy in the car. We go crazy in the car. So love it. Love it. Oh, awesome. Well, Okay, last question then, last question. You're on the Eternal Optimist podcast. When I say the words Eternal Optimist, what might that mean or what might that feel like to you? Beautiful question. You know, Matt, one of the things that's been a guiding light when I talk about the future self, it's really important to my business practice, to who I am as a person. I always like to think about the future. But when I think about what's brought me the most joy in life, when I talked about dancing, it's actually connecting to to the inner child inside. And so when I think about being an eternal optimist, I think about, or maybe I should say I feel, because I get lost in my thoughts. I guess we all do. But I feel very much like the question then becomes, how do I get to enjoy childlike wonder? How do I get to wake up every day feeling a little bit like it's Christmas? It's not about getting presents on Christmas. It's about the feeling of being together and celebrating and having a great meal. And so for me, thinking about being an eternal optimist is how do I fan that flame and keep that eternal spark alive of childlike wonder and not get too lost in the drama or the details or the adulting to forget that life is a magical, beautiful, unfolding gift. And I have no idea what's going to happen after this conversation or tomorrow or the next day. I get the gift of showing up presently and getting to enjoy it with those around me. So to me, eternal optimism is childlike wonder and cultivating that no matter how old I get, no matter how gray my hair gets, that would be a privilege is how do I maintain that spark of childlike wonder inside and dance to the beat of the rhythm? Wow. Amazing. A great answer. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to a couple of things. A, 
uh, before we turn the microphone on, Cassie and I both committed to getting a new computer in the, by the end of the month because my computer is slow and we had some tech issues going on. So that's one. B, I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing this dance competition within the next quarter. And you said that you wrote a manuscript. Has your book been published? We didn't even talk about that. What's the name of your book? So we can go get that too. Yeah, thanks. I love that. It is published. It became an Amazon bestseller. I would love for you to read it. Okay, here's the title. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Let's worry about everything. So the premise is, <laughs> <laughs> the premise is I worried about everything so you don't have to and you're welcome. So it's supposed to be funny. A few people other than my mom laughed, which made me endlessly happy. But it details it in absurd levels of quirky puns, my journey out of success and achievement addiction into finding a way to love myself. So that's what the book is about. Wow, fantastic. Let's worry about everything. (laughs) Man, oh my goodness. I'm going to go get it right now. This is fantastic. Cassie, this has been a real treat and joy. Thank you so much for being with us today. And good luck in every future endeavor. And thank you, Cassie. Thanks, Matt.